Hi guys and welcome to Yelling at Clouds. I'm Alex Whiteley and uh, as I explained on the last episode, I am but a shadow of what is going to become of this podcast. I like this. Um, and today, uh, this is episode two, a new class is in session. So everybody sit down, grab a seat. Yeah, you at the back. I see you. Stop mucking about. Stop chatting. We've got messages to hand out in class, have we? Can we read that, please? No? Okay. Rather not. I would like to introduce you to today, today's teacher, Mr. Eric Fluger. Hello, hello. Now, granted, I don't look like the picture normal on this image says I look like. That picture makes me look like Neil Patrick Harris playing the community theater production of the Colonel Sanders story. But no, <laughs> that is Irish novelist James Joyce. We're going to be talking a decent chunk about him today. But first, um, Alex, if you have any clearing of throat you want to do or anything like that before I dive in, please feel free to stretch. Um, no, uh, just, 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 uh, just, uh, I am here, guys. Okay. Uh, the whole purpose of this podcast is to hit record and let Eric just go. Uh, this is the whole point of this podcast. I'm learning, you're learning, whilst Eric is enjoying teaching us. So, Eric, please take it away, sir. So, ready, steady, go. It shall be. Let's start with a story. Um, while my wife, Yvette, and I were dating still, we hopped in the car and drove about three hours north of us to St. Petersburg, where you will find um, a large gallery devoted strictly to the works of Salvador Dali. And no need to go into fine detail about his career overall. I'll just talk about one painting in order to get us started, because it does a perfect job of illustrating now, Yvette and I go into the gallery, and we look at one painting. Its simple title, there are two. We'll start with a simple one first. It's Gala Contemplating the Mediterranean Sea, dated 1976. Now, in this image, Gala, who was Dali's wife and muse, does just what the title describes. She stands against a large window and looks out onto the sea in a contemplative pose. So how about, Alex, you pop that for that image up? There you go. See? Now, as you noticed, her back is to us, and she is naked as nature. So Yvette had to start this experience centered right on Gala's ass and work out ass. from there. It's a fine ass, i got to say. I mean, Gala appears to have a mole on the rear of her right upper thigh. She lifts her left foot in a pose right out of a Tarantino film, and the whole thing is composed and executed with the technical elements that you would expect from a painter of his caliber and level of experience. And if you're a vet or anyone else who is observing this work for the first time, a technically excellent rendering of Gala's as is all well and good, but you might not see why that should lead to this painting being considered significant when set against other more prominent works of Dali's, even against other works in this gallery that use Gala as a prominent element. That's only because you haven't seen the wholeness of the thing. You haven't comprehended the entirety of it. Not yet you haven't. And Yvette hadn't yet. And I anticipated that because it happens to most observers. Hell, it happened to me my first time. So in advance, I'd place myself behind her and to her left. And now I put one hand on each shoulder. 
And because we were dating, we felt wonderful doing that for its own sake. But what I then did was I start softly saying, okay, now back up, back up slowly, back up, back up, back up. And together we did, we backed up several feet. Didn't take long, but it felt like it did because, and we will be talking about this more. This experience isn't concerned with time, but after a brief but delightfully romantic moment of backing up together, Yvette quite suddenly saw the wholeness of the thing. Her entirety had been comprehended and her reaction was profound. Her breath suddenly drew inward in the shock of revelation and she was not backing up anymore. And I let go of her shoulders and I allowed her to remain still in the contemplation of this work. And her face displayed a wonder that had not been there when simply looking at an ass with a mole an inch or so below it. And now I've conveyed how she reacted to the spoiler of this little story. We can drop it for the audience by putting up the second image and reading out the far lengthier title that Dali preferred for this painting. And when I tell it to you, the whole thing will become very clear. Gala contemplating the Mediterranean Sea which at 20 meters becomes the portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Homage to Mark Rothko. Now, once the observer, in this case, the observer whose name was Yvette, has seen the entirety of the thing, they can no longer see it in any other way. Can you? No. You understand that it isn't about Gala's ass or any other part of her. It isn't about contemplating the Mediterranean. It isn't about any of the surface elements. It's about how those surface elements have been arranged to create a larger reality. And that reality, having hit her suddenly and with great force, as such realizations do, she was spellbound. And in a sense, did you not feel that way when you took in the image for the first time? Granted, not the same way, not live. Yeah. Yes, it's very good. I've got another picture here, which is at the bottom, uh, which is, of course, this pixelated picture here of uh, of Lincoln. On, it's almost like an Easter egg. Is that actually part of the painting? Or is that Indeed it is, yes. All of that is so, there. Just a little clue. A little clue there for you at the bottom. And there's the heel of the foot that Quentin would love. <laughs> now, this specific reaction that Yvette had, is my objective as an artist every time I work this reaction in particular? That's what I'm shooting for to make you, the observer, freeze in place on purpose because that moment of wonder, fascination, radiance is one of the most important and singular aspects both of art creation and of art appreciation. And it is the core of the aesthetic experience. Now, what we call aesthetics, the philosophy of beauty, is in fact a much larger issue than we're going to tackle. What we're going to tackle here is simply what guidance I take, what my philosophy is when I work. Which is not a bad thing to base the second episode of a show devoted to an artist to be centered around, right? Works for you, Alex? Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to when it comes to looking at art, um, you can either see a painting, or I was talking about this today actually about um, 
stained glass windows and not being a, a religious guy not going to church, churches for religious reasons reasons i've always taken stained glass windows as for granted they're just like oh okay they're nice colorful windows it's only until you get right up close and you see that detail in the art and the, the way that they made those beautiful windows you really appreciate it and it's the same with this uh, by, by by dali you look at it and you think oh there's a lady there's a chick looking out of a window cool but then you go back and you look at it and you focus or you unfocus actually as you you look at this picture and that is that awe-inspiring mic drop moment and that that's all that's very important mm -hmm. right? that moment of aesthetic arrest is the capital of the land in which the artist lives of course it's yeah. what he's after and I'm going to walk you through that today as best I can while trying not to bury you in, in terminology and heady thoughts because, you know, you need to function after all this. <laughs> but I think I'll make it fun. Think I can bring something out of this particular tuba? Let's find Let's out. Have some fun. And it starts, as a lot of things do in my thinking, with Joseph Campbell. Most people know who he is. I'll talk you through it. You know, 1904, 1987, an American mythologist, writer, lecturer. American, but clearly Irish in spirit through and through. <laughs> Obviously best known for his seminal 1949 work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and for inspiring not just Star Wars. That's merely the best known example. Uh, but a pretty serious chunk of popular culture besides, including parts you might not suspect. Uh, but that's not at all what we're here for today. That's a whole nother episode. Now, what we're going to go into today is one of the ways in which Campbell was so inspiring to creatives, in particular, a major way in which he inspires me as an artist. And that is his breakdown and synthesis of James Joyce's aesthetic principles, which function as the basic rules under which I create art. I mean, you knew this eventually. This was going to be about me somehow, right? Campbell spelled out these principles multiple times in multiple lectures, as we'll get into. He was a very capable and enthusiastic lecturer on Joyce. Uh, but what I'm going to place my emphasis on is a lecture he gave in 1981 called The Way of Art, the cleaned up and significantly enhanced text of which can be found among several other lectures given roughly around the same time in what would turn out to be his last book before his death, The Inner Reaches of Outer Space, Metaphors, Myth, and His Religion. But as I also had the lecture itself in audio form, and I listened to it quite often while working, I'd recommend that. Now we got to get into James Joyce very briefly, particularly since neither you and I have read Joyce, probably. I haven't. I've read his interpretation via Campbell. That's it. But Joyce dates 1882 to 1941, Irish novelist and poet who revolutionized novels with his 1922 book, Ulysses. And he followed it up with 1939 with Finnegan's Wake, which is the origin of the term monomyth that Campbell claimed is his and made his rightly and, and built his career on. But we're going to go back further than those two. We're going to go back to K Joyce's novel, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, published 1916. Uh, in which his main character, his avatar, I imagine, uh, Stephen Daedalus, a young college boy, uh, discovers and outlines 
his own personal aesthetic principles. And these principles, Campbell said, were quite sufficient to sustain Joyce throughout his career as one of the preeminent novelists of the last century. Now, of course, you've got to ask, should we trust Campbell and what he has to say about Joyce? I haven't read him. I'm, I'm trusting a third party. Can we trust him? I'll get to the blurb on one of the back of one of Campbell's books about Joyce, and it will tell the story. Quote, in 1927, as a 23-year-old postgraduate scholar in Paris, Joseph Campbell first encountered James Joyce's Ulysses. Known for being praised and for kicking up controversy, including an obscenity trial in the United States in 1920. The novel left Campbell both intrigued and confused as it had many others. Joyce isn't necessarily the type of book one can just pick up and read, Campbell says. Because he was in Paris, he was able to visit the Shakespeare and Company bookstore, the outpost of the original publisher of Ulysses, Sylvia Beach. She gave him clues, quote-unquote, for reading Ulysses, and that, Campbell attested, changed his career. For the next 60 years, Campbell moved through the labyrinths of Joyce's creations, writing and lecturing on Joyce using depth psychology, comparative religion, anthropology, and art history as tools of analysis. End quote. Cut to significantly later in his life, around the time when he and his wife-to-be, Jean Erdman, the dancer and choreographer had just married. They marry in 1938 in a simple ceremony and Joyce's magnum opus Finnegan's Wake, the novel he spent 16 years, a third of his life writing, gets published the following year, 1939. And that's the event his biographer says affected his life more than any other. It clearly frustrated the hell out of Jean Erdman. I, I watched her say, in her own words, when we were first married, I swore I'd never read that book because I was on one arm and Finnegan's Wake was on the other arm, and he spent just as much time with Finnegan's Wake as he did with me. She might have said at the end of that, God damn it. Now, how bad was it? Now, I'll read from his biography about how he and Jean went to Hawaii to visit her family not long after their wedding. The wake went along as well, the book says with a hefty Webster's Dictionary and a guide to places and historical events in Ireland. So Campbell could follow along. On one occasion, Jean remembered, Joseph waded from a boat to shore through the Hawaiian surf, holding a satchel containing the books on his head high above the water. Sorry, Jean, his life, his love, and his lady is the sea. Now, Alex, I'll tell you right now, partners of artists can occupy a very unique position and one that is not necessarily to be envied or coveted. But, Alex, it ended up yielding something important. He began working with his friend Henry Morton Robinson on The Wake, and they frankly needed to work together because, while I haven't read it myself, as I said, I promise you that it's true what Campbell said about it. It's not the kind of book one can just pick up and read. You need to bring a great deal of your own work to it. You have to meet the book halfway. And the result of that work, some years later, and after a few adventures which are themselves worth a telling someday, the result was a book they co-wrote, A Skeleton's Key to Finnegan's Wake, 1944. And because The Wake is so challenging, so few people tried to subject it to scholarly scrutiny for so long that The Skeleton Key became the de facto means of studying and interpreting The Wake for the next three decades. That's five years before Campbell definitively established himself with a hero with a thousand faces. So what do you think, Alex? I think we could safely assume that no matter how far he diverges from the source material, he knows whereof he speaks. 
it's a huge risk, isn't it, to make to to write work that only a few people can decipher. It makes you wonder um, how, how <laughs> where they think the payoff is going to lie. Is it going to be in a few year, few years when the penny finally drops, or you know, just the few people in the world that can understand what you're writing can consider your genius? Do you know what I mean? That's a dilemma. That's a well, there is. I think the thinking is is that there's no sin in having the observer do some of the work, provided it's only some. If the clues are there, if they are coherent. Yeah. The observer has something to work with. I suppose. I suppose back in back in them days, we didn't have Disney Plus, Netflix, uh, Facebook, and places where people can write instant reviews on on what you've made. You've got time mm. to play with, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and by the way, modern times have brought Joyce's principles to a certain level of scrutiny. And I think the real subject of the controversy comes from the terms he uses. So apart from where we have to update terms to better serve the intended function of the principles, we can let Tam Campbell talk to us about Joyce with a sense of confidence, but those principles do need some updating. We'll go into them. So time for the dive, eh? Let's dive. So Joyce begins where you probably should, which is to define art itself. That seems intimidating, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. What is art? What I mean, the concept of art is so broad, you'd think it couldn't be yoked to a definition that's both simple enough to describe to those who exist outside the disciplines and also inclusive enough to, enough to provide space for the countless number of disciplines that exist. Fortunately, Joyce pulls it off. His main character, Stephen Deedless, defines art thus. Art is the human disposition of sensible or intelligible matter for an aesthetic end. It's inclusive right there because it includes not just sensible matter, that which is perceived by the senses, smell, taste, hearing, and such. Lust. Also, <laughs> that's something else entirely. We'll get to that. that that's porno. That's definitely porno. Sorry. We will also be getting to that. Ooh. Trust me. So not just sensible matter, that which is perceived by the senses, but intelligible matter, that which is understood by the intellect. That includes a lot. But now let's talk about terms and the need to revise them for greater inclusivity. Joyce uses the terms proper and improper art. He divides art into two, those two types, proper and improper. Now, the phrasing indicates why he used it. Damn pooter. <laughs> the phrasing indicates why he used it. Because to him, proper art simply means art performing a function that is proper, singular, distinctive to art. The kind of function that only art can serve, that being the aesthetic function. Whereas improper art is art serving any function other than the aesthetic. Whether those functions be economical or ethical, political, sociological, or other. So when we explain those functions a little more, we can then uncover what options we have for better terms, more functional terms than the ones we've been using at this point. Okay. 
Okay, it makes sense now. I thought it, I thought this was punk rock before punk rock. I thought, like, <laughs> I thought by, by improper he meant stick it to the man, let them wimp. Like, let, 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 let them. No, we'll be operating along different principles, and I I think once I've spelled them out, I'll be a bit wordy granted, but I think you'll be able to make head or tail of it at the end of the day. Improper art, Joyce says, is kinetic. Proper art is static. Get that? Improper art is kinetic from the Greek, meaning to move. In that it moves the observer either to desire, to move toward, or to loathe, to move away from the object represented. Make sense? Okay. Yeah. Improper art is kinetic. It moves the observer either to desire or to refuse to reject the object represented. Improper art, as he calls it, is therefore divided into two orders. Art which arouses desire for the object represented. Joyce terms pornographic. Keep my promises. Now what's unfortunate about this term is that at once you're tempted to laugh. And the first place your head goes is to Pornhub. Well, maybe the 14-year-old Alex Whiteley, but oh, I've been around the block a few times, Eric. Uh... Maybe. And I agree. The term's a distraction and even a misdirection when we're discussing this topic. So what I want to do is describe the Joyce definitions and hopefully understand why he chose those terms, and then we'll make a suggestion as to more functional terms. All advertising art is pornographic. When you see an ad for a refrigerator and it's hosted or and there's a beautiful young woman with lovely refrigerator-like teeth for her smile, and you'd go, I'd love a refrigerator like that. Pornography. It gets worse when you see a travel brochure showing somebody skiing on the slopes of the Matterhorn and you'd go, I'd love to go to the Matterhorn and ski. Pornography. <laughs> it's worse when there's when you see a commercial for the latest shoot 'em up video game. It's the first person shooter, and it's like you gotta get it. It's totally awesome, and the music is pounding. <laughs> Pornography. Is it porno? <laughs> I love that. Why? Because it's wanting you to desire the object, to want the game. To want to ski on the slopes by virtue of purchasing a trip, by wanting the refrigerator. Right? Yeah. It's more subtle than you're thinking. Now, art which arouses loathing for the object represented, Joyce terms didactic. Works of satirical art are didactic. Any derogatory portrait of somebody is didactic because it's meant to arouse loathing for the person portraits drawn of. Works of social criticism are didactic. What about In those uh, those pictures they put of dying people on the packs of cigarettes? Like a warning. Didactic. Because it's meant to make you hesitate to smoke. Okay. 
According to Joyce, then, the distinction between what he terms proper and improper art has to do with the relationship between the observer and the representation, more specifically with the way the mind of the observer is intended to react when observing the object represented. Pornographic art intends that the observer should be moved, that is, inwardly motivated, to decide that they want to possess the represented object in the real world. Art representing a product in the form of a refrigerator in this fashion is meant to move the mind of the observer toward the decision to purchase the refrigerator. Got it? Art representing an ideological concept in the form of a political party in this fashion is meant to move the mind of the observer towards the decision to support the party. Or against it. That's didactic art. Didactic, yeah. Didactic art intends that the observer or the representation should be moved, that is, inwardly motivated to decide that they want to oppose the represented object in the physical world. Therefore, art representing an an ideological concept in the form of a political party in this fashion is meant to move the mind of the observer away from the decision to support the party. You get it? Improper art in Joyce's view is kinetic in that its purpose is to move the observer's mind to action. To purposely cause the mind to move either toward the representation by arousing what Joyce terms desire or away from the representation by arousing what Joyce terms loathing. Hmm. I've covered that. Now hopefully we can go back to the terms and ask ourselves if we can find ones that are less distracting, which are defanged by being a bit more technical. We could start by removing any odor that clings to the proper improper dynamic and reaffirm that to me, this is strictly about classification and not gatekeeping. By simply using the terms static art and kinetic art respectively. With respect to the two orders of kinetic art, I proposed in place of pornographic, we use attraction-based kinetic art, and in place of didactic, aversion-based kinetic art. That a bit fair? Yeah. It's There's no value judgment in attraction-aversion as opposed to proper and improper. So whereas what Joyce and Campbell term proper art is not kinetic, it's static in that its purpose is not to move the observer's mind to action of any kind, either toward via attraction or away via aversion. Rather, it is static, hence my suggestion to use the friendlier term static art, in that its purpose is to hold the observer's mind in place, to purposely cause the mind to stand still, in a state of sensational, that is, sense-based or aesthetic, contemplation and enjoyment, in which, according to Joyce's words, the mind is arrested and raised above desire and loathing. That's a highfalutin way of describing the experience the observer named Yvette, whom I love, had when she had seen the entirety of Dali's painting. Make sense? Absolutely. How... Um, I don't mean to divert away from what you've got there, but how does this work with music? It includes music. Uh, I have discovered that Joyce actually allows for many art forms beyond the visual. 
Okay. He's using the visual as an example. I'm using the visual as an example, but I need to stress, this is far more inclusive than that and includes many types of art forms. So we get to start, we start to get a sense of the true difference Joyce is making between proper static art and improper slash kinetic art. The desire and loathing, Joyce actually wrote, writes this passage, we'll quote, the desire and loathing excited by improper aesthetic means are really unesthetic emotions, not because they're kinetic in character only, but also because they are not more than physical. Our flesh shrinks from what it dreads and responds to the stimulus of what it desires by a purely reflex action of the nervous system. Our eyelid closes before we are aware that the fly is about to enter our eye. Which constitutes the only point I can find in which Joyce does indeed make value judgments about proper and improper, static and kinetic. They place kinetic emotions on the level of the purely physical and external, and the static emotions on a level that is internal and above the physical. The kinetic emotions are the mental and emotional equivalent of being in Edwin Abbott's flatland, in that you are confined to the equivalent of a two-dimensional mode of thinking. And the kinetic arts operate strictly within those two dimensions, the two directions of forward and backward, toward or away. But static art doesn't confine you to two dimensions. It doesn't confine you to flat land. If it moves the observer at all, that movement operates entirely outside the two-dimensional mode of thinking and instead assumes the existence of what to you would have been a previously unperceived third dimension of up. But that's not conventional movement at the physical level. That's a concept that exists in a kind of quantum state oscillating between the medical, metaphysical and the outright spiritual. And yeah, they're not, it sounds like they're knocking the kinetic arts for not operating on levels beyond the purely physical. But then I have no choice. I have to be less unkind of the kinetic arts. Because to be perfectly honest, the kinetic arts have put food on my table for 30 years. <laughs> you live and die on your kinetic arts sometimes. An instance, when I create an architectural rendering for a client who is an architect or a realtor, my task is to excite desire for the object represented, the commercial or residential property currently under construction. And quite often my participation becomes necessary uh, because most people don't speak blueprint, so to speak. Yeah. Their senses aren't excited by desire, by a blueprint, because it doesn't and can't connect with the observer that fast. It often requires the observer to briefly detach from it and perform a number of internal calculations to convert two-dimensional schematics into a three-dimensional mental image. And that takes time. Spoils the effect. A rendering done properly saves the observer all that mental effort. It does not oblige you to think yourself into desiring the representation. Rather, it invites you to feel yourself into desiring it. And because being able to do that brought in what income it did, I am indeed casting a more positive light on the kinetic arts than Joyce and Campbell do. And all I can do is shrug and say, what are you going to do? Is it because it's just too easy? Is that, is that why there is a bit of a distaste for it? Is it because oh, it's just too easy to chuck a half-naked lady on top of a, a Jaguar car to sell it? Do you know? Well, rather, he's going, it's too easy to trigger you at the yeah. basic level of the physical 
at the animal level. I think that's what that means. And that's a value judgment. And if, those, if people take umbrage from that, I do genuinely apologize. Plus, for me, the lines are blurred anyway. I confess it. When I bring, I bring the very basic process for static art into play when creating kinetic art. Indeed, I maintain that part of what makes my kinetic art kinetic is the fact that I employed static principles to it. All laws, all principles ultimately break down under sufficient scrutiny, even if it takes literally all the scrutiny to do it. The lines defining those principles ultimately become fuzzy when you examine them closely enough. But I acknowledge that going in. So when we look at like your Babylon artwork, so you've got uh, Kevin with his the, the Batman one, you know, where he's with Bane and he's got the red eyes and, you, you know, you either do want to do one thing, you want to watch Batman. Or you want to watch a Kevin Smith movie, or you want to sit and listen to Babylon. But at the same time, there is that static look, that, this, the beautiful detail, and that you kind of just sit there and you look it for a little bit. So, with your imagery from that piece of artwork, that's where the lines get a bit fuzzy because you kind of, yes, you are trying, you are advertising Hollywood Babylon with that, but the art is so good that you're going to stop someone for a little bit so they look at it. Am I am I doing that right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, uh, according to Joyce, basic portraiture is portographic if it's no more than just an attempt to render the person specifically. Okay. It's or as Campbell put it, a portrait is some is just a rendition of you with something wrong about the mouth. <laughs> Adding more to it, uh, like throwing all of the damn Batman stuff into it, throwing all of the totality of German history into it, throwing whatever I know of Japan into what the fuck Japan. <laughs> yeah. Kind of brings it to a quantum state in between static and kinetic. It's static enough to catch you in order to make you want to purchase it. In other words, it catches you first. It moves you second. Yeah. So these are just not rules. They are guidelines, yeah. and they are not religion. They are not meant to be heeded as such. They are simply what works for me. That's all. And if you gain something from that that helps work for you, artist out there, I'm happy for that. What's more important, though, is that you find something that works for yourself, as I had to. And I just happened upon this. So what's the basic process for static art? Joyce throws Thomas Aquinas around a lot in this because Joyce was as into Thomas Aquinas as Campbell would be into him. And in the book, he has Stephen Dealess describe his aesthetic, aesthetic theory as applied Aquinas. So he goes to Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas says that beautiful, that is beautiful, the apprehension of which pleases. Simple statement. Beauty is that which pleases. Now, lest we think of that as being an exclusive way of thinking, Joyce makes the point that it's broader than you think. If beauty is just something we see and like, then what if he asks an observer from Greece or from Turkey or from China or elsewhere may have different standards of what constitutes beautiful to them? Joyce appears to allow for this. He says... Though the same object may not seem beautiful to all people, all people who admire a beautiful object find in it certain relations which satisfy and coincide 
with the stages themselves of all aesthetic apprehension, which we'll get to. These relations of the sensible, visible to you through one form and to me through another, must be therefore the necessary qualities of beauty. To bring still more Campbell into this, super deep, Campbell built his thinking regarding mythology on a foundation laid by the 19th century German polymath Adolf Bastian. To Bastian, you divide myths into two ideas, Elementargedanken, the elementary or universal ideas, are just that, universal across cultures. But then there are what he calls Volkergedanken, folk ideas, which are the local elaborations of the elementary ideas, and which are determined by two things, geographic location and historical background. Thus, Bastian was a pioneer of the idea that ultimately humans everywhere share the same basic mental framework. This in turn inspires Jung's concept of archetypes, which in turn inspired Campbell to place his emphasis specifically one on our various mythologies have in common. So how do we apply this to Joyce's problem regarding differing standards of beauty? We poured it over by saying that Joyce's theoretical Greek observer may not necessarily respond to the forms in a Turkish work that a Turk might respond to, but they might possibly recognize and respond to the elementary idea informing the Turkish artist. In other words, a given work may not necessarily have been made for you, as the kids call it, but you would still see things in it that would lead you to understand that this is what the artist was trying for. Oh, yeah, they were trying to induce a state of aesthetic arrest in the observer. Okay, nice try. So... I described three stages briefly, three things for beauty. And I do think that they're fun to describe. So to specifically describe them, back he goes to Thomas Aquinas, first in Latin and then in English. Three things are needed for beauty, integritas, consonantia, and claritas. Integritas, wholeness. Consonantia, harmony, and claritas, radiance. As to me, th these do not represent rules to be followed, so much as they're a simple description of a three-phase process, one leading into the next, and then resulting into the last. Integritas, wholeness. In the novel, Joyce has Stephen Deedless point to a random basket sitting around and says, look at that basket or any object in your room, Alex. Pick one. Uh, I've got, got a bin underneath my... my <laughs> you've got a bin. Okay. In order to see that bin, your mind, first of all, separates that bin from the rest of the visible universe, which is not the bin. He uses basket. The first phase of apprehension is establishing a bounding line drawn about the object to be apprehended. An aesthetic image is presented to us either in space or in time. What is audible is presented in time. What is visible presented in space. But temporal or spatial, the aesthetic image is first luminously apprehended as self-bounded and self-contained upon the immeasurable background of space and time, which is not it. You apprehend it as one thing. You apprehend its wholeness. That is integritas. When you look at that bin, the moment you put a frame around it in your mind, everything 
outside of that frame is irrelevant. It's off in space somewhere. All that matters to you is what is in that boundary. So when we look at this ass, <laughs> that's what we're looking at. That's well, no, it's ass. more like when every it's more like everything within the boundary of the frame of that painting is all that matters to you. Everything outside of that doesn't matter to you. The wholeness is what happens inside the boundary. By the way, notice that Joyce is allowing for every form of artistic expression here. Didn't you ask me about that earlier? In fact, he says Thomas Aquinas' language covers aesthetic apprehensions of all kinds, whether through sight or through hearing or through any other sense-based avenue of apprehension. Music, food even, the culinary arts, what you smell. God, that smells good. Hear that sizzling? Damn, that sounds good. Hungry? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've never done it yet. Now, consonantia, harmony. The novel puts it thus. Then you pass from point to point led by its formal lines. You apprehend it as a balanced part against part within its limits. You feel the rhythm of its structure. In other words, the synthesis of immediate perception is followed by the analysis of apprehension. Having first felt that it is one thing within that boundary. You feel now that it is a thing. You apprehend it as complex, multiple, divisible, separable, made up of its parts, the result of its parts, and their sum harmonious. That is consonantia. I think that's how cows would definitely, my wife, by the way, would definitely describe me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> now, all of this means is that once you, the artist, have established your isolated field to work in, your frame, and once everything outside of that frame has been cast off into the neutral zone, the thing of primary concern is to you is what Joyce and Campbell refer to as the relationship of part to part, of each part to the whole, and of the whole to each of its parts. Whether one element is balanced against the next and whether all elements are balanced so that the whole is harmonious. What that means in practice is that during the composition process, you'll be making a large number of small decisions, asking yourself, as an example, does the apple look best in the very center of the basket or just a little to the right or maybe to the left? Would it look better an inch up or an inch down? Would the orange look best just to the left of the apple or further to the left, maybe a little further? Do the apple and the orange look good together when they're placed specifically where they're placed in the basket? or another placement make them look better together. But no, you're not done yet. The rabbit hole goes deeper. Where will the light come from? Where, what direction will it be hitting the basket with orange and apple in it from? Would it look better hitting it from another direction instead? What color of light looks best? Something warmer, something cooler? What about whatever other objects are behind the bin and how they're colored, how the light hits them? I'll stop there to spare your sanity. Welcome to my daily grind. <laughs> but it goes far beyond the still life metaphor with a bit beyond objects and colors again Joyce wants you to think broader than that depending on the discipline the parts can be just as easily words their sounds musical intervals architectural features and proportions or again how about the culinary arts where it's the most easily understood as achieving the proper balance between ingredients too much cumin and not enough how long in the oven and at what temperature and so on the point is that when making all these decisions, and as far as Joyce is concerned, 
The sole criterion is what arrangement will achieve the best, absolute best possible rhythmic balance of forms. Because Joyce sees rhythm as the means by which harmony is achieved. He says, rhythm is the first formal aesthetic relation of part to part in any aesthetic whole or of an aesthetic whole to its part or parts or of any part to the aesthetic whole of which it is a part. <laughs> and as difficult as that sounds, it's simple in practice. It's just a step-by-step -step process of considering while working. Claritas, radiance, the third step. Now, before I explain that, I want to dwell briefly on the fact that Campbell uses these words. When this harmonious relationship is fortunately achieved, here we have a very stark fact, a very frank acknowledgement that we have to confront. No matter how carefully you make all of those small decisions, no matter how hard the work is, no matter how hard you work to achieve a harmony that can arrest the mind of the observer, no matter how hard you try to exert as much control in advance over the decision-making process of the observer as possible, in the end, that process is outside of your control. It is dependent, as Campbell says, on fortune. Rather, it rests in the mind of the observer and not the hand of the creator. The, the Goldilocks zone. In fact, had, had it, having done everything you could while it was inside of your control, you have to be comfortable with that at the beginning. It's not in your hands, ultimately. So now we can properly transition over to defining claritas. The novel puts it thus. When you have apprehended that basket as one thing and that then analyzed it according to its form and apprehended it as a thing, you make the only synthesis which is logically and aesthetically permissible. You see that it is that thing which it is and no other thing. The radiance of which he speaks, Aquinas, is the scholastic quiditas, the whatness of a thing. The supreme quality is felt by the artist when the aesthetic image is first conceived in his imagination. The mind in that mysterious instant shelly likened beautifully to a fading coal. The instant wherein that supreme quality of beauty, he says, the clear radiance of the aesthetic image is apprehended luminously by the mind, which has been arrested by its wholeness and fascinated by its harmony. This is the luminous, silent stasis of aesthetic pleasure, a spiritual state very like to that cardiac condition which the Italian physiologist Luigi Galvani, using a phrase almost as beautiful as Shelley's, called the enchantment of the heart. Beautiful, isn't it? Nice, yeah. The, the artist has thus established a brief but highly powerful connection between themselves and you, the observer, via the work. Just like Yvette did. And what happens is that regardless of how long or short the length of that connection taking place is, for as long as that connection is taking place, you, the observer, are held in a state which, in Campbell's wording, is more or less spiritual, in which that represented object becomes pure object, and you, the observer, are pure subject, in which you are the eye of the universe beholding the thing of the universe, in which the mystery of that thing is the same as the mystery of the universe itself, and in which you, the observer, have gone past all accidental experiences and arrangements. I'll take a breath, Alex. Get a word in. 
Um, I am just writing down the the term Mozart with words because that's how I I would describe what you've just uh, explained to us. Except that these are Joyce's words and more or less not mine. They are my third-hand interpretation of such and hampered by the fact that I haven't read A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And I may very well want to do that specifically to have an episode where I come back to this and approach the question of whether or not that alters my perception of my own processes. I mean, you can delve further into this with perception, couldn't you? Because, of course, something that is um, kinetic, uh, maybe kinetic to one person, but not another. You know, we talk about American Psycho, you know, Christian Bale. You know, doesn't he sees people as objects? He's not going to get moved by objects of, of beauty because there there is no beauty to him. He's a psychopath. He's he doesn't Except feel- that no, that doesn't that doesn't work that same way because then Thomas Harris creates Hannibal Lecter, who is indeed a psychopath and very much an aesthete. Yes. He understands the difference between static and connect, and he understands it has nothing to do with how he sees his victims. Except that he has an aesthetic sense in that he positions his victims in a certain way that is aesthetically pleasing to him. But that is another story, and I have in mind a specific topic to use for that. But we'll get there eventually. That's when I get to talking about yoga hosers. <laughs> you got to make me watch yoga hosing again. <laughs> because I have a great deal positive to say about Kevin Smith's film. But I'm interpreting through a lens that's unique to me, and you'll see when I get there. Oh, thank, I love, oh, oh, God. Thank you, Eric, for making me do this. By the way, yeah, this is how this show is going to go. Is Eric is definitely going to be giving me homework to do, and if I don't do it, he's going to yell at me because um, we won't have a show to talk about. Simple. It's the Sister Mary discipline with a steel roller. <laughs> oh, my head! <laughs> oh, God, I love Kevin Smith, but Yoga, yoga Hoses was a hard watch. It really was. Not for me. It's just I'm interpreting through it a different lens, and it's what I see in it that strikes me that I'll be bringing into the discussion, perhaps more than the film itself. So now we're skidding into the finish of the discussion quite suddenly. And all you can do when the car comes to a complete stop is go, woo! Right? Oh, no. No, not at all. Let's do another hour. Holy (laughs) fuck, what a ride! And there's a metric ton more that I could add to this specific discussion, but I'm going to take pity on your ears, my vocal cords, and the audience's patience. And so what I'm going to do to put a button on the discussion before we just go into something more casual for a bit is to throw one last quote from Stephen Daedalus out there for you to ponder. To speak of these things and to try to understand their nature. And having understood it, to try slowly and humbly and constantly to express, to press out again from the gross earth or what it brings forth, from sound and shape and color, which are the prison of the soul, an image of the beauty we have come to understand. That is art. Bidding. Yeah. It's well done, Eric. That was amazing. It's not. I've been I've been speaking to a lot of artists lately of all different kinds, you know, uh, make so many different yourself and Sam Poole who makes abstract art and the the, the stained glass lady today, um, Natalie um, Hildegard Liege and 
I have been asking myself a like, lot, how do you define art? Because I, I write up these episodes. I put like a, a paragraph about what this episode is and why people should listen to it, blah, blah, blah. But you do ask, you find yourself, why is this important? Why is this important? And, you know, it goes back to, um, uh, you know, everything is art, whether it's a stop sign, um, whether it's those horrible pictures they put on a pack of cigarettes to tell you to stop smoking, you know, what we talked about earlier. Art is so important, and we should be looking after the next generation of artists. Um, well, you talk we, about uh, you talk about a, a sign, a street lamp. Did you say a stop sign? Stop sign. Okay, it becomes art the moment you put a frame around it mentally, yeah. and the moment in your head you start arranging, say, the clouds behind the stop sign and what else in your head into the perfect aesthetic rhythmic arrangement. Then it's art. Again, just as an artist can come from anywhere, art can come from anywhere. As Amadeus said, you know, a vulgar farce of a play can indeed be considered valid subjects for opera as surely as the more elevated mythical ones. Yeah. What you do with it matters. A podcast of a film director and a comedian called Hollywood Babylon may or may not be a fit subject for a painting. I say it is because of what I bring to it. Mm -hmm. What they bring to it inspires and informs my choices of how this object balances against that in a work, how they do the Germans as characters informed to a degree, how I compose the painting. And we will have an episode about that. Yeah, because that's really important, isn't it? Because sometimes you can overdo a painting until the point where you ruin it you know it's got to be at that perfect balance of a little bit of yellow here a little bit of white there a bit of line here oh my god i fucked it up mm. <laughs> you know well my worry is here here is that i fucked this up have i beaten you over the head with words sufficiently as to not make the point clear no because what what you can do with podcasts like this is you can listen and you can listen again and you can learn uh, you know, I totally understand what you're saying, and I, I, I have def you. You've dropped some knowledge on me, son. Uh, you know, talking about kinetic art and non-kinetic art, and you know, I I understand that now, whereas I didn't know about it before. You know, the the terminology behind it, I can go back and listen again, and I can learn those words again. You know, but then again, here is something I have failed to do. I have talked about the kinetic emotions, desire and loathing, but I haven't really gone into detail about the static emotions to the level that I should. But we and that is what episode. calls for another episode at some point. Indeed, as I say, after having read the novel to its fullest. Is that is that kind of, can we use the Mona Lisa as as the kind of an example of, of static um, art? Because Let's be okay. Let's be honest. I, I love art, and I think it's amazing. But the Mona Lisa is one of the most plain paintings of all time. It's a, a plain, ordinary lady sat there. She's not even smiling. You look at it and you go, "Ah!" And I'm sure that's what a lot of people have done. They've gone, they got on a plane, they've gone to the Louvre, they've gone to see uh, the Mona Lisa, and they've gone, "Ah!" You know. Well, and had Leonardo da Vinci been strictly concerned with the depiction of the woman as such, it would have been kinetic. But that's not enough. It doesn't just do that. He elevates the image of her beyond strictly desire this image. 
the landscaping around it, the arrangement of forms within it, the way she's sitting, the way she's lit, everything makes it more luminous than just a rendition of what this woman looks like. And that makes it static. Aha, you are held. Yes. Just as Yvette was held by what would otherwise have been a perfectly ordinary rendition of freaking Gala's ass. <laughs> right? And Dali was perfect at that because he would make art that people would look at, think about, then come back and complain about, <laughs> you know, the the Jesus on the crucifix. That that didn't that get banned? Didn't that cause uproar because people were like, "Hold on, what's he just what's he painting there?" You know, he was kind of caused a bit of an uproar with that one, didn't he? Mm. And yeah. the thing is, if let's say if Yvette had been looking at that painting and had just seen only a butt. Then we might indeed at least consider the possibility that that painting was kinetic yeah. and not static. If she hadn't seen the wholeness of it, she might have been tempted to regard it as a work of attraction-based kinetic art. In, because in the absence of the context provided by that wholeness, it looked to all the world to be an advertisement for Gala's ass and how Dolly felt about tapping it. Perfect. I like that. Not necessarily. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, context is one of the most important. You could uh, paint a yellow square, just a yellow square, and uh, put it on a wall, and you go, ah, okay, it's a yellow square. And then you go, this is to celebrate the freeing of Bill Cosby from prison. And then you go, I don't like it. You know? No, I don't like it either. Shit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? That yet before before you heard this, the context behind it, you didn't know what that yellow square square meant, and you went, "Ah, mm. it's a yellow square." Then you hear, "Ah, oh, it's the, it's not." By the way, I just made this up. I just wanted to make someone so, so vulgar that you'd be like, "Ah, oh, I hate this yellow square now." Congratulations, context. that did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now here we have a picture of Gala's ass, and not necessarily being the target demographic. For an advertisement for Gala's ass, Yvette might not herself have been moved by desire to possess the object represented, but she would have nonetheless understood that exciting desire for the object was the essential purpose of the work. But then she saw the wholeness of it, and she was physically and mentally arrested. This was a work of static art, and she understood. She had unexpectedly found herself on the business end of it, held in place, in stasis. So... Is the meaning behind this picture then to let's bring it back up again? Uh, so, is the meaning behind this because obviously Abraham Lincoln had a great role in history, um, in, in, in freeing slaves and mm. you know, be, be becoming a bit more liberal, teaching to be a bit more liberal? Is it a case of stop focusing on the woman's ass and look at the bigger picture in life? No, it's him experimenting with ways of seeing, which was a common thing in the 20th century. And which a lot of the movements of that century had to do with ways of seeing rather than the object, ways of seeing the object. Cubism was not so much about the apple as it was about the way of seeing the apple. I need to see this picture in person. I'd love to see it one day. I have been to two uh, Dali exhibitions. We spoke about this, Erica. I went to see one in Bruges and one in Venice. Very lucky because 
um, these things move around Europe. And mm. uh, I think the one in Venice was like the last two days or something. And we're like, we got to go and see it. So we got tickets and we raced across Venice and we went to see it. And um, we were already in Venice when we found out, by the way. We didn't just go to Venice to see this exhibition. But nonetheless, I was in there for hours and I was in my element. And just to see all his work in person was just so amazing. And then in Bruges, similar. I was kind of like, I've seen this one before. <laughs> so that one event is, you know. Now, if you remember the experience correctly, I suspect that at least once during that expedition, you felt aesthetic arrest. Yes, I did. you were taken amazing. and held by a piece. Yeah, I mean, some of his like really like scruffy pencil sketches are just breathtaking. You know, you like he just sat there one day, doodled uh, a naked lady. Um, and she's like turning into a demon or something like that, whatever he's drawn. And you're thinking, I couldn't do that <laughs> ever. My 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 best effort would never look like that, you know. Um, I just think he's brilliant because he used to see outside the box, you know. Like, wonder what would happen if I'd make this clock just melt, uh, you know. About ways of seeing. In this case, the surrealist way of seeing, which taps into dream and psychology. And why my own work, at least in part, is surrealist and in part fantastique, which is basically, it looks like fantasy, not reality. Actually, Clive Barker described the fantastique thusly. He said this, and it's where I derive the earlier statement from, of how most of the movements, artistically speaking, in the 20th century has been about ways of seeing about ways of seeing an apple, the cubist way of seeing an apple, the surrealist way of seeing an apple. But then Clive Barker goes, I'm not concerned with ways of seeing an apple. I'm concerned with the fruit you have never encountered before, and I'm going to render it real as realistically as possible so that the reality of that fruit is absolutely apparent to you as much as an apple would. That's kind of more me than cubism or surrealism. <laughs> and that's the point behind all this, though, isn't it? Is that it's, it's, it's all everybody's an individual, you know, and like I said, if you if you if you're a gay guy and you see the, the half naked lady spread all over a sports car, it's not going to excite you, is it? But you would understand at heart that it's meant to do so with yes. the right person. And you could go, OK, I can still judge on the level of whether it might do so to that person. Yeah. And whether your orientation is this, that or other, you would still be able to at least make a judgment. Oh, I get it. Yes, this is trying to attract me. But it, it, what I mean, the point I'm trying to make is it does open up discussions to talk about the spiritual uh, sense behind this because, you know, we're talking about, you know, there is that connection of, of does it excite me? You know, and it's, it's, I think it's really interesting that we can, we can get, we can do another episode, I reckon, to look at the spiritual side of. Well, of course, and we're going to count on it. Yeah. And the thing is, Campbell's wife, Jean Erdman, said it best. The way of the Arctic artist and the way of the mystic are related, except that the mystic doesn't have a craft. <laughs> ah? <Huh? laughs> and yes, in a sense, artists are shamans or priests. There's a difference I've... between the two. But an artist, indeed, in part, is that. 
there's a spiritual aspect dimension to what we do. Especially when you see things like this by Dali, because like, I, I always wonder, I mean, I saw a piece of art um, where it was loads of objects spread across a room and you have to stand in the, in fact, we've got one in Shrewsbury. It's called Darwin's Gate. Um, it's, 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 um, it's three carved pieces of metal high up and they've got like bits that are carved into it. Um, you you have to walk down the street to a specific spot, then look back, and these three carved pieces of metal, they they merge into one to make a Saxon helmet. Aha! You are held. Yes, and there Aesthetic you go. Static arrest. Yeah, uh, and you know when you when you're making something like that, you have to you must have to keep walking back. And how do you see that in your mind? We're going back to you talking about being the architectural blueprints. Uh, and look at a blueprint and go, aha, that's what this part looks like. And that's what this bit looks mm. like. Let's draw this. And as I said, a basic viewer of a blueprint has to do that detached scan, hit that calculation in his head to convert mm -hmm. 2D to 3D. Now, when I do it, I have to do that for them to save them the step. Amazing. I oh. have to convert 2D to 3D in my head and then render it as not 3D, but at least 2.5D. <laughs> In order that the in order that whoever may want to buy a home based on the rendering doesn't have to do those calculations. Those calculations are tiring. They make you not want to buy. You, don't want you to instead have good luck with the blueprints and enjoy. <laughs> right? You instead need to be held in the rest as surely as you would in a static piece. Aha. But that that form of reaction in a kinetic piece, as I said, is movement-based. It's not static-based. The instant you're held, you were then made to move. I want that. So it doesn't stay static. Yeah. See why it occupies that weird quantum space? Yeah, absolutely. It's very And where rules semi-break down or blend into each other, they're not commandments. Yeah, it's all individual. I mean, do you find yourself thinking about? I know this is uh, this is all uh, you know bits of information that you've learned throughout the years of becoming an artist and what you've what you've studied. But do you find yourself thinking about these things a lot when you're when you're you know creating art? Always. In fact, I actually play Campbell's lecture, "The Way of Art," as I said, when I work sometimes. And the effect is just no different than when you go to church. You're reminded of things. Ah, you're reminded of this mindset you're meant to stay in. Mm. Now, granted, you can do all kinds of things while you work, and I do. Lectures, audiobooks, movies, binge TV watching, or at least listening, because it's meant to be a kind of static in the background. Yeah. A it's show you want to watch when you're not watching. So you see Chris Pratt ripping his shirt off and chasing Velociraptor. I don't know. But yeah, then you get that. Oh, it's Chris Pratt. Toplet, you know. Lady. That is not aesthetic arrest. That is kinetic. <laughs> that is attraction-based kinetic. Bryce Dallas Howard running in heels. How the fuck is she doing that? <laughs> not anymore. She's too busy directing Mandalorian and presumably other things and becoming quite damn good at it, clearly. It's in the blood, isn't it? It's in the blood. It, Absolutely. It's in her it's in her blood. It was in her father's blood. It's in there. It's in her grandfather's damn blood. 
We'll, we'll get her on the show. Just get Mr. Get Howard. Any any of the Howards is fine. Just get one of them. Oh, yikes. If you could do that, anybody with even the most peripheral Lucas connection for when I get this damn Force poster done, then you'll see some aesthetic freaking arrest. Sure. <laughs> if anybody knows Ron Howard, just uh, drop him a line. Time to come on yelling at clouds. Oh, um, Clint Howard, I'll do. <laughs> I go love your work. <laughs> um, what are you working on at the moment, Eric? Uh, besides this podcast, well, I'm wrapping up commissions and a couple of things, and just trying to clear my table of things. And then I expect to dive into the Force poster and finally finish this damn thing because. George Lucas celebrated, what, his 78th birthday? And, you know, it's bad enough that my father didn't live long enough to see its completion. If I have to let my spiritual father die before it gets freaking finished, that's it. Wrists open. <laughs> Is that like a thorn in the foot then, that, that, that picture now? Is it becoming like a real, um, a real task for you to get it finished? It was always a real task. It's never otherwise. Lord knows. I mean, it, in an ideal world, I'd make a documentary about its creation, but we have to keep it here and fine, we'll do it here. <laughs> Yelling at Clouds presents a Fluger picture. But damn it, it is a mountain to be climbed. It's a task. In fact, I had to put it up several times, including now I'm only about to start taking it down to finish it. I've had to put it aside several times. Because of circumstance and simple, it was so 2020 for me as it was for everyone else that it literally hindered my ability to function enough to paint. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I look forward to it being finished. We'll have to do like weekly, or this shows every fortnightly, but we'll do fortnightly updates. Have you finished the painting yet? <laughs> have you finished the? Well, my problem is that I keep getting hammered with that question online and I, 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 I gag on it anymore. Because I know what's gotten in the way. And a lot of it is quite serious. Yeah. So let's not do that then. (laughs) The painting's not done, but my father is, for instance, you know? Yeah. And one must heal from that. And besides, it's not the first example of its kind in art history. I mean, Dali, as I once mentioned, as I said, he said that uh, a masterpiece is something that takes at least a year to finish. We're on two now. I mean, Wagner took 20 years to compose the ring cycle, and he had to set it aside twice for Tristan and then again for the Meistersinger. 20 years to compose it, and it took another 20 off of his life. So why am I different? Think I'm going to walk through this whole thing unscathed? Hell no. (laughs) I mean, I have gray hairs on these cartoon versions of me for a reason. I can't wait to see what wacky zany uh, creations come up with next time. Uh, do you have any idea what we're going to be doing next time? We did discuss this before. As I said, we will always be trying to create art with every one of these, but we will not be so formal about it all the time, as I also said. We'll also be talking about things lowbrow as well as highbrow, and trying to bring something out of the lowbrow tuba may prove just as interesting a challenge. I've prepared ad infinitum for these two episodes because the nature of the subject matter demanded it. Yes. But let's say I talk about a film that has no aesthetic uh, draw to it whatsoever. It's not pretty. 
It's got a decent enough score. The effects are okay enough for 1979. But there's no reason that Disney's 1979 film, The Black Hole, should have left so much of an impression on me that evidence of it is all over my life. But we're going to talk about the many ways in which it is, which probably will mean a shorter episode and one that after this we can be more lighthearted and fun about. Okay, well, let's make it interesting. Guys, if you're listening to this um, and you want to actually take part in, in next week next uh, next show which will be in two weeks time and you have two weeks to watch the black hole and if you want to write some questions um for eric mm-hmm. that we can put the end here for about the film about what he thought about a certain part of the film um put it onto the you fan page and use the hashtag ask flugs um hashtag ask, ask, ask the flug Ask the Flug, I think that's how we put it. Um, and we will we will include your question mm. into the show. And we'll ask Eric about what he thinks about that. And you know what? We'll make some artwork. We'll do uh, Ask the Flug. Uh, and we'll get that going because I think it'd be really important to, to, to hear what people think. Indeed. And it'll be far less lecture and far more roundtable discussion next time oh, for that very reason. That's what this uh, that's what this uh, podcast was created for. Imagine me sat in front of a crackling fire with a glass of brandy whilst, uh, you know, uh, Eric Fluger stands in front of me with a t-shirt rocket launcher, shooting massive rounds of knowledge into my face. Matt, that's sorry, it. lazy bones, you're gonna have to actually do some work sometimes. So, how's <laughs> about how's about we, no 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 we're not gonna do that. I don't want to give you a lecture, Eric, because. <laughs> Yeah, this <laughs> this is your show. Um, okay, are we? Should we should we round it up there? What do you reckon? Well, we'll say gonna... let's round it up by saying that anybody that would like to join in in that fashion, go to Disney Plus if they have it, or find other means, uh, DVD, Blu-ray, what have. Go watch the Black Hole. It's ninety minutes. It's not much. <sighs> the only point of doing so is simply to follow along when I tell you what things from that film have somehow played a role in my life good bad or indifferent and it's not so much a discussion of what is beautiful about the black hole because there isn't much it's like trying to say there's a whole lot of aesthetic arrest to be had from john carter no <laughs> so guys, way you you have two weeks go and find the movie on disney plus watch it we're gonna have to do some hard work for this show you know sometimes we gotta we gotta do this for the art of discussion Okay, so go and watch the black hole. Go find it on Disney Plus. It's it's pretty much guaranteed to be on there if it's a Disney film. Uh, if not, find ways to watch it, and uh, we will catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully, with notes in hand. Um, I'm going to be watching it. I'm going to get the wife to watch it with me. See what she thinks. There we go. She'll hate Eric. you for it. <laughs> we'll have the, uh, the, the 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 Carolina reaction, and I'll give it to you. I'll let you know how she found it. Cool. <laughs> Presumably she'd find it on the television, but uh, we'll see. I, I look forward to it. You went racks for that then. You went very literal. Um, I am moving very slowly. <laughs> Eric, uh, you, have you got any? Uh, actually, let me tell you about the website first, and then we'll leave Eric to do a closing comment. Um, guys, this has been a, a USUC Network production. Um, we're very, very grateful to have had Eric on the show. We love doing this, honestly. Just to be able to sit hit record and tell Eric to go and look what we get Mozart 
with words that's what i put it but um if you want to watch anything uh, or take part listen to anything that you make please go to our website which is usucknetwork.com and that's powered by our friends at web orchard if you need a website make sure you go to web orchard they make a great website like we did like we have um and um yeah you can be, you can listen to all our shows on that website um eric you've been amazing send send, send us send us away sir I sure shall try. We've done this a couple of times now. I think we've stretched a little bit. The wings have been stretched. I think we can fly now. We could be like Stephen Dedalus's namesake and stretch our wings. Let's just try not to be Icarus about it and not fly too high and then drop like a stone. Let us sail safely to harbor. And with that in mind, I hope that you will join the journey with me, fly with me, all of you. And hopefully, it'll be a fun flight. But who knows where we'll land. 